All right, I guess we're going to do this. So welcome, everyone. I will admit that I am not surprised that it is a small number, because we're going to talk about a heavy topic uh, that people don't really want to talk about. That's sort of the, the thing. Um, so recognizing that it's a heavy topic, recognizing the subject matter, I figured I'd start with a clip to sort of set the tone. So uh, enjoy. Oh, I guess I should say I'm Ben Madison. I'm, at, uh, I'm doing Shooting Blanks, Baby Making in the Age of Anxiety. Uh, now's your chance to find the talk that you meant to go to, right? That's the, uh, so like I said, a clip to set the tone. This is Mr. Whitefeather. What? Yes. Oh, is it bad? Are they slow? Are they dead? Were there any? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. My sperm is nice and healthy. In terms of sperm, I'm wealthy. I'm like Warren Buffett. I got so much of it. That's what the doctors tell me. My point is in a nutshell. Each time I bust, I bust well. I got the quantity and the quality. No IUD is stopping me. Cause my semen's steaming like a demon. And all the surrogates be screaming. Just give me some of that premium great baby batter. I never splatter. My sperm, my sperm is no cause for concern. My sperm is healthy. My sperm is healthy. Shucks, gee whiz, I got the best sperm in the biz. My sperm is healthy. My sperm is healthy. My sperm is healthy. Brad, you too. Even though I'm no teenager, my boys still throw a they get bottle service and every cervix blowing eggs up like a pager. Every lady's getting fertilized, got a diaphragm, it's getting pulverized. My sperm shines brighter than the sun, so wear special glasses or a virtualized. Give thanks, my tank's not shooting blanks, I'm in a league of my own. Just like Tom Hanks, not a castaway, but a blast away. That thing I do is inseminate you with my sperm, my sperm. The tests have all confirmed. This sperm is healthy, this sperm is healthy. Oh, shucks, gee whiz. My sperm just ace the quiz. My sperm is healthy. My sperm is healthy. My sperm is healthy. Congratulations. Thank you. No, it's not. And that is uh, exactly why we're here. I'm uh, Ben Madison. And that was a scene from the CW's My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And unlike the head of the law firm, uh, Daryl Whitefeather, uh, my sperm is not healthy. Uh, and it has taken me on this interesting journey that I would like to share with all of you. Uh, and it starts out pretty uh, normal, right? Uh, I grew up in a nuclear family. Uh, I have two siblings. I have uh, you know, two parents who loved me very much. We grew up in the church. Uh, both of my parents were Methodists. Uh, so we grew up with a, with a very good sense of Christian perfection. Uh, but it was never sort of the over, overburdening type, right? I knew that my parents loved me. I knew that God loved me. Uh, and uh, you know, things seemed to be going in the right direction. I uh, met my first serious girlfriend at the end of high school. Uh, and like all good uh, young Christian men who grew up at the height of purity culture, I married her. I am still married to her. And uh, you know that comes with all of the, the gifts that are the uh, constant uh, 
struggle with, am I lusting? How does premarital sex fit into this, right? And you sort of navigate your way mainly by uh, putting a ring on it, right? Uh, so we get married, and as the adults that we are, we have this conversation about production. I know, I know. We have this, uh, this conversation about reproduction, right? Uh, we, we're both looking at uh, careers in the future, looking at grad school, trying to make decisions, and after many sort of long and arduous arguments, uh, we decided that we'd wait until I was done graduate school to start having our family. So we go to Virginia for seminary, uh, we, I, we graduate, I get ordained, we get ready to move to Texas, we pack up my 2002 Toyota minivan, and we hit the road for Waco, right? Mature adults, making mature decisions, getting ready uh, to start our family. And that uh, is where it gets us, right? Uh, we are in Waco, and after about a year of trying to have a baby, and if you know what uh, that circumstance is like, right, you're uh, taking basal temperatures, you're, uh, right, you're doing all these sort of tests, after a year, uh, my wife, Ashley, looked at me and said, I'm tired of doing all the work for this. You need to go get tested so we know what's going on. So we drive to our local Walgreens, we cough up the 50 bucks for a home sperm test kit, uh, and then uh, you know, the first of many indignities occurs, and uh, we test it, and we get no response. And you know, thinking uh, mm -hmm. as we do, it must have just been a mistake, we uh, buy another test, call out another $50, do it again, and again, uh, no result. So if you think we stopped at two, you would be wrong. We went and bought a third test, because you know, it, there's, gotta be, there's gotta be some explanation and nothing. So at that point, uh, we have to go see a doctor. And one of the things that, uh, that you'll learn as we talk sort of about infertility is that Regionally, where you are is very uh, has a large uh, effect on your ability to re receive like quality assistive reproductive technologies, and also Waco being Waco, I love it deeply. But one of the doctors told me when I went to go speak to him about this, he's like, "Oh, I wouldn't worry about it. It's usually the woman's problem." I was like, "Thanks, doc. That's uh, that gives me at least you know a, a certain level of self righteousness." So. <laughs> We, we do this, uh, and I finally go and see a, a fertility doctor. He looks a lot like the narco, narcoleptic Argentinian from Moulin Rouge. You, you, you've seen this movie? Yeah, he looks remarkably like this, jacked as all others, with uh, descriptions and diagrams of penises all over his wall. Uh, and, and this is where we find out, right? Uh, as Tom Hanks says, Houston, we have a problem. I get the test back, and it is not good. Um, at this point, life circumstances have changed. We're getting ready to move back to New Jersey. Uh, and I sort of have this diagnosis. And, uh, and like, what do you do with it, right? You just sit with it. And um, it starts you on this process, right? This process where uh, you think everything is going fine. You think you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And what you quickly come to realize is that all relationships and all of life ultimately at one point or another takes this cruciform shape, right? That you end up nowhere else than the foot of the cross. Uh, yeah, so uh, we come back to New Jersey, we start the whole 
process. And what you quickly find out is that it's the best, worst secret club in the entire world, right? A lot of people are in it, but nobody ever wants to talk about it. So one in eight couples uh, have difficulty with infertility, right? And that means either uh, an inability to conceive, an inability to keep a child to term, right? One in eight people. That is a lot of people. And as the millennials, right, my generation gets married older and has older children, the numbers are only going to increase. Uh, because as any good fertility doctor will tell you, if you're in your 20s, they can probably give you a baby, right? If you're in your early 30s, you're on a deadline. And if you're past 35, you're in deep trouble, right? Uh, and it's trouble that a lot of people will find themselves in. Uh, you also discover, as I mentioned earlier, that depending on where you are, access to this technology uh, is limited, right? So one of the uh, contributing factors from us moving from Texas back to New Jersey wasn't just my wife in law school, but like where we are in South Jersey, 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia, I have this world of technology and options open to me where if we were going to do reproductive technology in Waco, we'd have to drive two hours to Houston or two hours to Austin, right? And if anyone is familiar with sort of how this works, you're taking shots on a weekly basis, right? You have to, we, it would literally have cost us thousands of dollars just to drive to the appointments if we had stayed in Waco. Uh, the other thing uh, that they don't tell you is that America's health uh, system is broken. I feel like you, you probably knew that, right? Uh, but so we have pretty good insurance. I'm an Episcopal priest. Uh, and our insurance has a cap of art technology, right, assistive reproductive technology at $15,000, lifetime, right? So in the life that you're on this health insurance policy, they will only pay $15,000, which is like, you know, it's like, that's a, lot, that's a lot of money, right? And then you find out that the pills for one round of, of IVF are $6,000, right? So almost half of the money that your health insurance is willing to cough up is covered uh, just in the medicine alone. So of course they tell you to pay for it out of pocket and you sort of work all of these things around, uh, but it just drives you slowly and slowly uh, to frustration, to anxiety, uh, to all of these things. And it just, it ultimately just feels like a giant sort of crushing feeling. And like we haven't even talked about sort of the, the, the horrific and let's call it this, the horrific indignity that is offering a sample, right? That means a semen sample to your doctor, right? Uh, where we were, uh, there was a really nice clinic about 20 minutes away, uh, and I would have to go on a fairly regular basis, but not too regular, right? Uh, we'll talk about that too, uh, to go offer this sample. And they always say sample because we all know what it is, right? And they send you to this tiny little room and my room had uh, naked etchings on the wall, right? Uh, these like stylized uh, people engaged in coitus, right? Uh, as I don't know if it was supposed to encourage you, offer you comfort, but it was there, right? I, I can't find the, the first thing I did is I took a picture and sent it to all my friends. And I was like, can you believe this? Also, can I get this from my bathroom, right? Um, and then my favorite part is besides all of the nudie magazines and things that, my God, I'm not touching, right? As you, as you finish offering your sample, uh, there's this metal box, and on the metal box is a sticky note that says, please wash your hands before giving the sample to the nurse, right? Because let's face it, we all know what's happening in that room, and nobody really wants to talk about it. Infertility 
is uh, not fun. And that's probably putting it as mildly as I can. And I think uh, what I found in this whole process, in this whole system, is that uh, when confronted with um, this thing about reproduction and fertility and virility, uh, I had to embody my best 1977 The Clash, right? I fought the law, and the law won. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Mockingbird and their sort of hermeneutic, right, their way of looking at the world, uh, but the law is this heavy thing, and that's probably the best way I can put it, right? It's, it's this heavy thing. If you go to their website, they have this wonderful glossary of terms, so if you hear any words that people use, sort of just casually throw it around, right? It's not in language, it is in language. But, <laughs> but you can look it up, right? And, and it, it's very helpful. So this is, this is sort of a, an excerpt of what they say about what the law is, right? The law with its you musts or you must not both defines the universal standard of divine goodness and reveals human weakness. It typically does its work of accusation in the form of commandment attached to a condition. If you do or are blank, then you blank. In daily life, the law can take a different form. Uh, it's not primarily a matter of what is said or written. It's a matter of what is heard. It is defined by its function and its effect, its constraining and accusing, rather than by its content. The requirement of perfect submission to the commandments of God has the same effect in practice as the requirement of perfect submission to innumerable drives for perfection and, and that drive every day, uh, what? for perfection that drive everyday people's crippled and crippling lives. You should be successful. You must be skinny. You ought to be happy. You ought to reproduce. The law is easier to find in some places than in others. But in my experience, the hardest laws that you come up against are the ones that you didn't even know were there in the first place. This is, uh, this is sort of the, the struggle that I continue to have with this infertility problem, right? Is that the church, which I love and I'm a part of, right? I'm a professional Christian. They pay me to do this, uh, puts an insane amount of value and expectation on one's ability to produce a family, right? The Duggars, uh, who I hope you're familiar with from 19 Kids and Counting, they are like an extreme example of what this means. Right? Uh, the, the, the Bible is clear about its, uh, its recognition of children as a gift from God. Right? Children as a family's blessing. You can't read Genesis and not get a sense that the thing that is driving the patriarchs is progeny. Right? That the hope of the world is literally in your ability to reproduce. Right? It's why Abraham can stand before God and say, well, you've gave me land and you got me safe and you gave me riches, but like, where's my kid? That is the law of fertility, right? That is the law of reproduction. And the church pushes this, right? And, and they push it. And it's, I'm not saying it's bad, right? Inherently, it's good. Children are truly a gift from God. But if you find yourself like one in eight Americans in uh, the best, worst secret club in the world, it's really hard to fight against this law, right? The only thing it can do is crush you. <clears throat> because unlike in other laws where you can try and start again, right, you can work harder, you can do this, there's something biologically and physically 
incapable of producing the result that you want, right? If you want to know what helplessness to the law is, all you need to do is have a semen count that is basically zero, right? Uh, there's no way uh, that you'll ever reach that end in Christian perfection of, children, of childbearing, right, of having a family. We hear this call to be fruitful and multiply, right, and we take it with great gusto because let's face it, it's really fun, right? But when it doesn't get to where you want to go, it leaves you hopeless. What's really interesting is the way that I think the church talks about it. And this is something from my own tradition. I am Episcopalian. And this is the line from our marriage service uh, that says, that sort of explains what marriage is about, right? The union of husband and wife and heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, and when it is God's will for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of God. We want families to have children. We want churches to be full of children. Children are a hope and a blessing from God. But what happens when we're confronted with the unspoken law that this fertility and infertility and virility standard come up against? In fact, even in this, right, there's an unspoken thing. Do you catch it? Do you see where it is? Right? It's not if it's God's will. It is when it's God's will. Right? The idea is that if you are the Christian who is uh, doing their best in service to God and doing all of the things that you can do, right, and trying to love God and love your neighbor, you get married in the church, you have the church bless it, that when it's God's will, uh, you will have children. It might seem like semantics, but I think there's a real issue and law that is written large there. In her book, uh, Shameless, Nadia Bowles-Weber uh, talks about uh, the Christian's take on human sexuality. And she did a big book tour that was great. She gave interviews to NPR. And she has this really, really helpful image that I like. Uh, and she explains it in an interview she gave with NPR. She says, as a very urban girl, I've always been puzzled by the way farmers would plant crops in circles in, a lot that's, in lots that are square. Because when you fly above them, you're like, that makes no sense. But then I realized it's not that they're planted in circles, it's that they're watered in circles. The center pivot irrigation system that was developed in the 40s revolutionized farming in America. And so the water just never gets to the crops in the corner. And I realized that's the way it feels about churches teaching around sex, is that if you happen to be planted in the center, if you happen to be cisgendered, heterosexual person who didn't have sex before their, before their marriage, who's only had sex with your one true love, and you're total, totally flourishing within that, then the teachings of the church are really okay for you. But so many of us are planted in the corners. The law of infertility, the law of, of reproduction has this way of convincing you that you can get to the center of reproductive righteousness, right? This is my own experience. I grew up in a Christian home. I've had one serious girlfriend who's now my wife, right? We definitely have premarital sex. Don't tell anybody, right? Um, the bishop said it was okay. Mom, you knew that, right? Uh, the bishop said it was okay. That's another story that I'll tell you about later, 
right? And we love each other, and we're, you know, you can sort of imagine this center irrigation, right? We get closer and closer and closer to the, what God intended. But what's so devastating about infertility is that as you think you're saving yourself through reproduction, that you think you're getting towards the center of that perfect example, suddenly you're cast into the dryness of the corners of the field. Right? You're told that this is how it functions, and yet you find out that that's not how it works. It's not how any of it works. The fact that one in eight families will experience infertility means that there's going to be a lot of people who think they're headed towards the center of the field who find themselves only to be on the outskirts. And what's difficult is that the whole system, especially in this country and in the church, was developed by our sort of waspy forefathers who had a very specific, who had a very specific notion of what it meant to have a family, right? And, and this is sort of the thing um, that drives me and still sort of drives me absolutely nuts about it because I, I can sort of understand where the personal aspects of the law affect my life, right? The, the things about uh, uh, virility, right, and masculinity in America and all of these things but there was just, there was this bedrock of this law about fertility that I just couldn't figure out where it came from, right? Like, uh, even though I was in a nuclear family, my parents didn't have your stereotypical gender roles, right? We had friends and other family members who, who had all sorts of experiences, and yet right at the heart of all of this, there was this thing that just was weighing on me. Um, and recently, I had a friend suggest that I, she heard I was giving this talk, and suggest that I check out this book. It is uh, by an ethicist at Duke Divinity named, uh, where is it, Amy Laura Hall. And she wrote a book called Conceiving Parenthood, American Protestantism, and the Spirit of Reproduction. Right? And in it, what she is talking mostly about is about childbearing and rearing in Protestant America. Right, especially after uh, the progressive movement in the early 19-teens and then after World War II. She starts to examine and dissect the way that Americans, particularly American Protestants, talk about um, child-rearing, right? And, and it, where we get our ideas about it and what drives it. And she writes this early on in her book. She says, the irony beneath this book involves my belief that the very Protestant tradition that should have emphasized a sense of divine gratuity, human contingency, sufficient abundance, and the radical giftedness of all life came in the 21st century America instead to epitomize justification by meticulously planned procreation. To put this point in its starkest possible form, a tradition that has within it the possibility of leveling all believers as orphaned and gratuitous, gratuitously adopted kin came instead to baptize a culture of carefully delineated, racially coded domesticity. Right? As she goes through the book, she, she describes about how uh, even today, there's this sense that when we talk about child rearing and child birthing, that there's good ways to do it and that there's bad ways to do it. And that oftentimes those ways are culturally contingent and sort of set up a dichotomy between, well, these are the good parents and these are the bad parents. And as you dissect it further, you find that there is a phenomenal capitalist move underneath of it, right? Because guess what? Good parenting costs a lot of money, 
and bad parenting costs next to nothing. Right? But what she, what she tries to dissect is, is, is where this comes from. Right? And I think she names it so well that American culture in the 21st century, especially Christian culture, has epitomized by justification by meticulously planned procreation. Right? Our ability to control our reproductive path is what saves us. Right? This is the lie, this is the law that undergirds all of these things. Right? This is why it crushes down, especially if you're in the church, and especially if you're in churches where large families are strongly encouraged, or at least the norm. I wish I could talk more about her book, but I don't have enough time. Uh, but I highly, I commend it to you. It is, it's sort of eye-opening about sort of the unspoken narratives that we have about parenting and child-rearing. So it, I, I have to agree with Hall's assessment. Uh, there is this sense that uh, the law, when you're confronted with it about re reproduction, is going to crush you. Uh, so what do you do when you, feel out, when you realize that you can't have children? Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to go to the doctor. Right? But the wonderful thing about the American medical system is that they got a lot of solutions. Right? You got the money. We got the solutions. We will help you do what you want to do. Right? They don't believe in failure. They don't look for failure. They look to succeed. The problem is that nine times out of ten, when you go to see a doctor, you're not going to get grace and mercy and understanding. You're going to get a double-sized heaping of law. Right? So what you'll see behind uh, me is a list of things that doctors have said to me uh, that will help increase my sperm count, maybe. Right? So let's see. So the first one, and, and, and I'm going to highlight some because you'll see that they're inherently contradictory, some of them. Right? So I was told to lose weight, but you have to lose the right weights, right? So you have to gain muscle. Uh, so to gain muscle, you have to lift weights, but you can't lift too many weights because that could cause some issues, right? Uh, you need to also do cardio, but you can't wear tight pants if you're doing cardio, and my God, you cannot get on the, on the, on the cycle, right? Don't do anything that's going to hurt the, you know, those sweet testicles that we need to nurture. Uh, uh, they said to go see a, a weight loss specialist, but to be careful because they're probably going to put you on pills, and some of those pills will affect your ability to make uh, sperm. But you know the benefit of losing the weight outweighs the danger of the pills, so you know we'll just sort of see that as it comes. Uh, they uh, they encourage you to cease all vices, and I'm not just talking drinking and smoking. I'm talking fast food, junk food, dinners out. Right? Uh, you're basically going to eat clean salads all the time and just drink a lot of water. And, uh, right? and, and this will offer some sort of flourishing in the reproductive realm. Uh, they ask you, after all of these initial things, uh, to stay relaxed. Right? Don't be anxious about it. That can get in the way sometimes. Right? So you have to do all of these things, and you have to be pretty smooth about it while you do it. Um, but also, you need to keep moving and stay positive, right? So if you do get sad, uh, go out for a walk, uh, not too vigorous again, with loose pants again. Please don't ride that bicycle again, <laughs> right? Uh, if you want to stay relaxed, you certainly can't get in a hot tub. That, those are out. Saunas, out. Anything that might increase the temperature of those testicles is out, right? Sorry, you can't take baths anymore, we, unless it's cold water, they said. Uh, and, and let's face it, who's going to take a cold bath, right? That's, you, that's when you wake up in, like the, in the motel down the street in a bath of ice, right? And somebody's taking your kidney without you knowing, right? That's the only way we get in a cold bathtub. Uh, 
you should take vitamins, they told me, uh, but you can't just take any vitamins from GNC or from Walgreens. You have to buy these very expensive uh, bespoke fertility vitamins of which there are multiple variations, uh, but we can't actually know for sure whether it's gonna work or not. So you need to buy at least two rounds worth, okay? So the way rounds work is sperm reproduces at a cycle of every three months, right? So you need to buy six months worth of vitamins to make sure uh, that it's working and actually being beneficial to you. Uh, also, these vitamins are going to be $120 a month. So enjoy, right? Your insurance doesn't cover them. They will mail them to your house. It's all very, very sketchy, right? Uh, you're supposed to avoid red meat uh, because that can affect sperm quality uh, because of the growth hormones and the steroids they put in it. You're also supposed to avoid fish because of the things that can be in fish. Uh, so it leaves you with like chicken, all, sad chicken in a sad salad, right? You're just sad eating it, but you can't be sad. You gotta be positive and uplifting, right? Keep going, You're, you'll be fine. Uh, you can't wear tight pants. You can't wear boxers. You can wear underwear or boxer briefs, but you know, you gotta keep it, you gotta keep it cool. So walk around the house without pants on as often as you can, right? Uh, then once these seem to not be working, they're gonna get into sort of the more uh, uh, horrific things, and I will spare you uh, the pictures and the, and the diagnoses, right? But then they're gonna, wanna, they're gonna wanna biopsy. And I won't tell you how much that was, um, and how uncomfortable it was, and where the place was. I have a feeling you can guess where it was, <laughs> right? Uh, and then they're gonna say, well, you know, if this is gonna work, the lifestyle can't, changes can't just be for you. So we know that your wife has tested fine on all of her tests, right? But she is a little overweight, uh, and we won't do IVF treatments unless BMI is at a particular level. Uh, and BMI has to be at this very specific level, and if you ask why, they'll tell you uh, that it's really for the safety of the patient and the efficacy of, uh, of, of art, right? Of the uh, uh, assistive reproductive technology. But what you really find out is that it's about insurance. Right, and that they don't want to take the risk of putting someone who's overweight under, uh, under for these treatments. So my wife, who is a smart cookie, says, uh, if I get my wisdom teeth out, they can put me under without a problem. Uh, why, why can't you? And they're like, well, it's for your benefit. Right? You want a baby, don't you? Right? And it's always, it always comes back to this. So now the law doesn't just affect the person who is affected, but starts to affect everyone else. Uh, I had to stop all medications for my chronic illness. Uh, although one doctor said that it could affect it and another doctor said it couldn't, the best case scenario was just like, oh, we'll forget it, we'll see what happens, right? Could this chronic illness cause this? Uh, well, it probably isn't helping, they said. Uh, and I said, well, what am I gonna do if I'm not on these pills? They're like, well, we'll figure it out, right? There's probably more pills, there's probably more things we can do. Uh, then they said that they really can't guarantee that any of this is going to work. Uh, and that every three months we're gonna tweak and we're gonna do more and we'll try more things. Uh, and at the end you realize that nothing works. They're all just guessing, right? And yeah, you lost 60 pounds and you have foregone everything you, uh, you love and that brings life joy and you've made your spouse hate you. Uh, and nothing uh, will ever reach the first sperm count that you had while you were still 300 pounds smoking and drinking, right? It's the, sort of the, it's the irony of this law. Nothing they suggest worked. And the more that they offer, the more law that they give, the more weight gets crushed down. But it gets better. 
because it's not just the medical field that is offering uh, advice about baby making, right? Uh, everybody's got an opinion. It's sort of like school boards, right? They always say in schools, right? School boards take the most amount of guff from people because everyone's been to school. So we all know how schools work, right? Well, guess what? If you go to church, everyone, it seems like, has had a baby or is having a baby or their families have had babies or their neighbors had babies or their aunts, cousins, sisters, brother, right? They had infertility, but they now have a healthy family of six. Uh, so you end up also coming up against these religious and social law about infertility as well. So if you thought the medical conditions were a lot, uh, wait till you hear actual things that people actually said to me. Uh, my first and most favorite one is someone's like, oh, you just need a vacation. Um, and I was like, you're not wrong, <laughs> right? I could definitely use a vacation, but I, I fail to see how this is gonna help my reproductive status. And they're like, well, you know, you're just calmer on vacation, you have more sex on vacation. I was like, you're a parishioner, please don't tell me that, right? <laughs> this is, it breaks some rules, right? But, uh, you know, uh, take a vacation, that's where you're gonna make a baby. Uh, or, you know, another, another classic, which is, you know, if you just stop thinking about it, stop worrying about it, it's just gonna happen. And you're like, I don't think you know how medicine works, right? When they look at a test and they tell you, you have no living sperm, like that is not, it's not, you're right, unless, unless there's some sort of immaculate conception, right? It's not, it's not gonna happen. Uh, then, then, you know, then, then there's always the helpful, well, are you doing it right? Right? Um, and, uh, I, I guess the answer is I don't know, right? Like, <laughs> like part of this religious righteousness getting to the center of the, of the sex circle is like, I've only been with one person. Maybe I am doing it wrong, right? I don't know. Are you gonna teach me, right? You have videos for me to watch. Uh, and then, you know, then you have those helpful friends who think they're being absolutely hysterical and don't know how much it actually super duper hurts. When they're like, well, maybe I can help your wife. And I was like, awesome. Uh, that, uh, you know, that burden just feels wonderful when you make light of it. Um, because the sad thing is maybe you could, right? Like that's the, right? If it's about virility, if that is what determines reproductive prowess, uh, then clearly I have been judged by the law and found wanting. Uh, I love the have you tried blank, right? Insert any myth or old wives tale, right? We have one, we have a cousin uh, I, my cousin and her husband got together around the same time we did, and they had children when they were significantly younger. And my God, did they, did they fill us in on all the myths about childbearing, often about sexual positions, and I won't, I won't uh, subject you to that, right? And then there's always the, well, there's already too many people in the world anyway, right? So we live at a time where choosing not to have children is an option for people, and I think it's a fine option. Uh, but maybe suggesting to people who are experiencing infertility that this is their option is not uh, the best one. And then, of course, religiously, you get exactly the same sort of amount of pressure, right? Uh, maybe God is teaching you patience. Uh, God has a plan. We just don't know it yet, right? Maybe God is telling you that he doesn't want you to have children. Uh, maybe this is the result of sin. Maybe you aren't praying enough. Right? Maybe this is something, maybe this is the result of a particular struggle you're having. Uh, think about how you'll be able to help others in this position. Right? All of these things weigh down. And because it's the best secret club in the world, literally nobody ever wants to talk about it. Ever. 
So as much as I would like to tell you that, there, that this is a, a miracle story, that I am now happily uh, the father of multiple children, uh, I can't. Because the reality of infertility is that for some people, it's just not going to happen, right? That it's not in the cards. And what happens when you reach that point is that you start to understand that life has a cruciform shape. And that as we all sort of go on through life and reach these points, uh, that there will be a definitive point where you stand at the foot of the cross um, and a part of you dies. And in my experience, I haven't had a lot of these at the foot of the cross moments, uh, but what I can say is that when something inside you that you didn't even know you cared this much about dies, it has an overwhelming effect on everything else. Romans 6, 1 to 10. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. For if we, need, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, we cannot die again, or he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. I can't tell you about a miracle story, but I can tell you about a death and resurrection. I came across this meme the other day on the Facebook, and I, uh, I was going to mock it, right, secretly, because I'm a snob when it comes to Facebook memes. Um, but instead, I found myself sort of abreacting all over it, right? I read it. And I saw it, and uh, it spoke to me, right? Uh, I always thought that love was shaped like a heart, but it's actually shaped like a cross. The hope that we have in these moments of death, right, in those moments where we are weighed against the social and religious and medical and unspoken law of the world, the moment that we experience those deaths, is when we find the possibility of something that comes after. Right? That ultimately the good news that I can offer you is not that somehow I magically fulfilled the law of reproduction, because I didn't. But what I can tell you is that when you reach the cruciform point of life, that it doesn't just end there. Right? And for some folks, uh, you know, they will go their entire life without having a, a, a cross moment. Right? Except that I can guarantee that when you're on your deathbed, right, and, the, right, and, the, and the, the, the lights are going dim and your people are around you and the priest walks in and is praying, like, guess what? You're going to have a cross experience eventually. 
right? But for everyone else, right, and probably for some of us in this room, and I know certainly for me, these cross moments come a lot sooner than you think. And that this is where the real power of the gospel is, right? That this is where the real hope in baby making is. The world can tell you and the church can acknowledge that it believes that reproduction is what saves us, right? Uh, I have a really gross joke, be prepared for it, right? I'm calling it justification through jizz, right? But it's the sense that uh, in, in, in producing children, right, we sort of participate in God's creative work, right? And that if we can raise these children in the church, then maybe they'll be the children to usher in the kingdom of God on earth, right? But what we find is that it's just one more law that believes in its own self-justification, right? And it's a law that we are so frequently confronted with, but so rarely oppressed by, right? Or even worse, we are often oppressed by it, but we just stay silent, right? Because how do you talk about this? Because no one wants to hear words like sperm and semen, right? And all of the other things that go into what it makes to take a baby. So as we uh, move towards this cruciform shape, and as we move through towards resurrection, What's interesting is in the same way that the law affected people in this process, uh, resurrection and grace affected as well. I remember years ago, Ashley's grandmother, uh, who we absolutely love, she's this wonderful, old, very proper Episcopal churchwoman. She read an article about how Neil Patrick Harris had gotten a, it's a surrogate, right? Had gotten a surrogate, and she just in a huff said, that Neil Patrick Harris needs to keep his sperms to himself. Right? It's, she said it. It's hilarious. Uh, and now that same 84-year-old woman is trolling the market for quality black market spunk, right? So that she can have more grandchildren. She's looking for it. She constantly says all the time, it's like, why don't you just get, why don't you just buy sperm online? She's like, I saw this thing. You can do it. It's super easy. Don't you just want to, right? And there's this transformative thing that happens, right? It's super uncomfortable unless you talk about this all the time. Uh, but what happens is their lives are transformed as well, right? Because when the uncovering of the unspoken law of fertility is revealed, right, it's not just revealed for you, right? If you keep it to yourself in the best, worst secret club ever, then yeah, it's just going to be a weight. But if you're honest about it, if you tell people about it, if they ask how it's going, you say, it's totally effed, right? It's going to change the way that they uh, respond. And it opens people up to worlds that they never even had to consider, right? It opens them up to things that they thought were true that aren't, right? And then it's not just our expectations that are dashed and realigned, but it's others, right? And it has this powerful, powerful experience. Uh, one of the other things that happened, because we decided sort of up front uh, from the beginning that we were going to be as honest about this as we possibly could. Because well, I don't really know what else to do, right? Uh, it's, it's very isolating, you feel very alone, and nobody really wants to talk about it. So what are we going to do? We're going to force everybody to talk about it, because that's just who Ashley and I are. Um, but what we found almost immediately was that we started getting phone calls from friends who had had multiple miscarriages, right? Or other friends and seminary classmates who are struggling with infertility and are about to go through a round of IVF. Right, we heard from other friends who were doing, who were going through this sort of secretly during seminary, uh, who connected with the experience that we're having. 
And still, time and time again, we run in across people, right? The one in eight couples, which is a lot of people uh, who had this experience. And we're able to sort of talk about and look for resurrection together, right? And that's, that's where the power is, that the most amazing thing we find uh, at the foot of the cross is an empty tomb on, uh, on Easter, right? Is hope in the face of uh, nothingness. Um, Ashley is probably not going to like this slide, and they're going to have to cut it for uh, when they show the video online. Um, but our life didn't end right? Uh, part of it did, right? A reality of it did, an expectation that I held on to that I didn't even know I had, that died, right? But it gave uh, birth <laughs> to something else, right? This is a baby, uh, and she is our foster daughter. Um, she came to us from the New Jersey Division of Child Placement and Permanency, Permanency and Placement, DCPMP, six days old from the hospital, right? It was sort of a lark. Uh, we found out unequivocally at the end of last year that we were definitely never going to have kids. Uh, so we were sort of like, okay, what do we do? Do we try to adopt? Do we look at that? And let me tell you, if you are an ethics-minded person, who cares deeply about the state of the world, don't look into adoption, right? Uh, because you'll quickly find out that it is like a really dicey system, right? Like often, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes those international adoptions, those kids are like basically kidnapped and then sold to Americans. It's awful, right? The, the number one reason people give up their children for adoption in America is financial. Right? And then you find out, and they give you, they give you the projected cost of what, a, what an adoption costs, and it's like, oh, here's a $45,000 bill. And you're like, wait, I'm paying a middleman $45,000 for a baby. Why wouldn't I just give $45,000 to a family and be like, for the love of God, keep your baby, right? Uh, so don't look into it. That's my, that's my advice. Uh, so what we did is, being out of options, we decided that we would just, uh, just... <laughs> Uh, that we would just uh, look into foster care. So uh, that is a process, uh, if you were wondering. It came with many interviews from our caseworker and like because we're sort of normal functioning adults uh, who have had a, a general reflective capacity. Ashley has worked in, um, in uh, social services and I'm a priest, right? The social worker loved talking with us. Like, you'd think, like, they're busy, they have a giant caseload, but God bless our caseworker, because he would be with us for, like, an hour and a half, <laughs> right? And they ask you the most probing questions, and they're so used to people avoiding them that when you tell them what's actually going on, they don't really know how to respond, right? And then our caseworker would be like, you know, I've heard a lot worse. And he's sort of constantly sort of reaffirming the things that we're like, we're like, look, I had to do this for a room full of people to get ordained. Ashley's had to do this. Like, it's not a big deal. Um... But this six-month-long process, including 29 hours of classes, uh, and then uh, uh, an updating of your house to make sure that children won't die in it, uh, and then an outside person coming in to make sure and verify and give you, you have a certificate that says children probably won't die in this house. Uh, it ends, and they say, okay, you're, uh, you're foster parents. Uh, you might get a phone call at any moment. Uh, and the end of November, we took a phone call to take in uh, this baby. And it has been fantastic, right? And we love her, and she is a part of our family, um, and we care for her as deeply as we possibly can.
the nature of our cruciform experience, right? the nature of us sitting at the foot of the cross, meant for us that uh, we were willing to look at the same cross for someone else. Um, because the truth is, when, when we boil everything down to it, everybody's life takes a cruciform nature. Right? And whether you like it or not, or know it or not, our time is limited. And we don't know how long our children, our loved ones, anyone will really be with us. Right? Everything is crucified. And the thing about foster care is that it just wears it out front. Right? You can't look at it and not recognize uh, the brokenness of families and of people. And then, as people who have stood at the foot of the cross and hoped for something in the future, you hold that child who has faced the cross way before anyone should have to. And you just barrel forward, right? Because what else do you have to do except to love and to be loved and to give it to others? So if you were looking uh, for the secret of baby-making in an age of anxiety, the secret is that you're going to die. <laughs> that a part of you is going to die. But that our hope and our sure and certain hope is that it's not the end. Right? That there is life that comes after. Uh, so thank you uh, for this. And as I promised in my blurb, I do have to force on everyone the abomination uh, that is uh, Greece 2. So uh, with that, I bid you adieu. And here's a song about reproduction. <laughs> of consciously controlling its number of offspring. Uh, are there any comments on that? Yeah, I was wondering to tell me where she lives. Yeah, and what is this? Mr. Stewart, is it true that guys like you, you know, mature and all, carry some protection with them for sexual occasions? Oh, What's God. the big deal? Can a girl just do that thing in a book where she adds up the days of her, uh, what do you call it, the mental stration? Oh, that's <laughs> really me. Yeah, and one of the guys said the numbers don't add up right, huh? Yeah! Yeah! yeah it's a Thank <laughs> you.